السلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له ونشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى اله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا اما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ان الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا ايها الذين امنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما صليت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما باركت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد respected listeners as announced we've gathered here today for the study and commentary of a very famous long hadith from Sahih al-Bukhari namely the hadith popularly referred to as hadith al-Hiraql the hadith of Heraclius it's a very long narration in which Abdullah ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhu the cousin brother of the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam he relates from Abu Sufyan another distant cousin of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam his meaning Abu Sufyan's experience when he once traveled after the treaty of Hudaybiyah up north to Sham where they would regularly travel for their trade and there on that occasion Abu Sufyan was summoned along with his companions of the caravan to the royal court of Heraclius the Byzantine Roman emperor who then questioned him in great detail about the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam his companions his message his mission his characteristics and his character after which Heraclius was convinced at least in his mind and heart that the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam was a true messenger of allah and that he was the final messenger foretold in the early scriptures however innaka la tahdi man ahbabta walakinna allah yahdi man yasha as Allah says in the Quran addressing the messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam verily you cannot guide whom you wish but rather Allah guides whom he wishes so despite being convinced in heart and mind that he was the true final messenger as foretold in the early scriptures Heraclius eventually chose not to believe and the details of this whole story inshallah we will come across as we proceed with the reading and the commentary of the hadith 
Now, let me at least begin the hadith and then I'll comment in detail. So, for those of you who are following from the original book of Imam Bukhari, his collection, his sahih, is hadith number seven. Also, in the abridged version, it's also hadith number seven in the Tajrid al-Sarih. وبالإسناد المتصل مني إلى الإمام البخاري رحمه الله قال With an uninterrupted chain of narration from me to Imam Bukhari رحمه الله He says حدثنا أبو اليمان الحكم بن نافع قال أخبرنا شعيب عن الزهري قال أخبرني عبيد الله بن عبد الله بن عقبة بن مسعود رضي الله عنه أن عبد الله بن عباس رضي الله عنه أخبره أن أبا سفيان بن حرب أخبره أبو اليمان الحكم بن نافع related to إمام بخاري says أبو اليمان الحكم بن نافع related to us he said شعيب informed us from زهري that عبيد الله بن عبد الله بن عتبة بن مسعود informed us that عبد الله بن عباس رضي الله عنهما informed him that أبو سفيان بن حرب informed him. So this is a chain of narration. Ultimately, Imam Bukhari, with his chain, relates from the companion Abdullah ibn Abbas, who relates from another companion, Abu Sufyan, who then relates the full story. And he begins with the words, أَنَّ هِرَقْلَ أَرْسَلَ إِلَيْهِ فِي رَكْبٍ مِّن قُرَيْشٍ that Heraclius sent word to him amongst other members of a caravan of the Quraysh. Now, before we proceed with the actual hadith, let me put some background to the whole narration. The period we are speaking of is after the Treaty of Hudaybiyyah in the sixth year of Hijrah. When the Prophet ﷺ emigrated from Medina, in the second year of Hijrah we had the Battle of Badr, then the Battle of Uhud in the third year, then in the fifth year there was the campaign or the Battle of the Trench, Ghazot al-Khandaq. And then a year later, in the sixth year of Hijrah, there was the treaty and the truce of Hudaybiyyah. And the backdrop to that was that when the Prophet ﷺ left Makkah al-Mukarramah in the first year, well, at the time of the Hijrah, in the 53rd year of his life, the Muslims were in a very weak position. And there were only approximately 80 or so emigrants. But gradually the numbers increased, the strength of the Muslims increased, their confidence rose, and then there was a battle of Badr, in which although they were overwhelmed and outnumbered, they scored a decisive victory against the Quraysh. A year later, there was a battle of Uhud. There was a setback, but ultimately, the Muslims were still victorious, although there was a huge setback. And they suffered. 
But then in the fifth year of Hijrah, within five years of the emigration, the position of the Muslims was much stronger, to the extent that although the Quraysh had gathered a huge army, well over 10,000, they were unable to penetrate the defences of the Muslims. And eventually, after laying siege to the city of Medina for some time, they broke away and re- returned to Mecca. It was on that occasion that the Prophet ﷺ actually announced in the fifth year of Hijrah, after the Battle of the Trench, that they will never march against us now, rather we will march against them. So in five years the position was now reversed. So the year, next year, in the sixth year of Hijrah, the Prophet ﷺ very peacefully made an intention of traveling to Mecca, returning to his birthplace and the holy city for the very first time, with peaceful intentions of only performing the Umrah, the last pilgrimage. He set off with approximately 1,400 companions, but the Meccans still ruled Mecca, the Quraysh, and therefore the Prophet ﷺ camped approximately six miles from Mecca at a place called Hudaybiyah. And he then sent a messenger, Uthman ibn Affan, and his own son-in-law, in order to negotiate with the Quraysh terms of entry into the city and being allowed to peacefully perform their Umrah and pilgrimage and then leave. However, the Quraysh were still bitter enemies and they refused. Eventually, rumors spread that Uthman ibn Affan, who still hadn't returned, had been killed. The Prophet ﷺ took a pledge of the companions. And then later, the rumors were dispelled. And this led to a stalemate. The Quraysh refused to allow them entry. And the Sahaba refused to return to Medina. Eventually, there was a negotiation between the Meccans and the Muslims, and this resulted in the treaty or the truce of Hudaybiyah. A truce which, on the surface, was totally in favor of the Quraysh and the Meccans, and was rather lopsided, and in fact quite disadvantageous to the Muslims. But the Prophet ﷺ accepted, and later Allah revealed verses of the Qur'an which confirmed to him that that truce of Hudaybiyah in the sixth year of Hijrah was actually a victory for him. And, إِنَّا فَتَحْنَا لَكَ فَتْحًا مُبِينًا Verily, we have scored a decisive victory, a clear decisive victory for you. And the meaning of this verse will become clear as we study the hadith too. As part of that truce of Hudaybiyah, the two city-states of Mecca and Medina now lay down their arms and entered into a ten-year truce during which they were allowed free passage and without fear of harassment. And the Meccans could resume their trade from Mecca to the north, to Sham. Because this was their livelihood. And in those six years from the time of the Hijrah till the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, although the Meccans attempted to trade, it was very risky for them. Whichever route they took, whether it was from Mecca to Sham, 
direct north, or whether it was from Mecca to Iraq, northeast. Either way, the Muslims of Medina, or their allied tribes, would lay siege to their caravans, would chase them, and would engage them in battle. And that's exactly what happened in the Battle of Badr, in the second year of Hijrah. It was the same Abu Sufyan who led a trade caravan from Mecca up north to Sham. On the return journey, the Prophet ﷺ sat out with over 300 men in order to intercept this trade caravan. Abu Sufyan cleverly verged and took a detour to the right, i.e. returning south, and therefore he ran parallel to the Red Sea on the coast. The Muslims missed him, the caravan was safe, but the Quraysh who had come out of Mecca in order to defend the caravan, they now persisted and they said, we will face the Meccans. This eventually led to the Battle of Badr. So the background to the Battle of Badr was the same trade caravan under the leadership of Abu Sufyan from Mecca to Sham. So after this Treaty of Hudaybiyah in the sixth year of Hijrah, the Meccans now felt at ease and they were allowed free passage without fear of being molested or harassed in any way. So Abu Sufyan led a caravan of trade from Mecca to Sham. And he says in another narration, although it's not mentioned here in this narration of Bukhari, that there was not a single household in Mecca, no man or woman, who had not given me some investment in that trade caravan. So it was a huge caravan. We took advantage of this treaty and truce with the Muslims and we departed from Mecca up north to Sham. And there were approximately 30 people with him in, in that caravan. They were camped at Gaza in Sham. And Sham, I'm going to repeat this word over and over again because it comes in the Hadith. Sham traditionally was referred to as the area today covered by Palestine, Lebanon, the Levant, Jordan, and Syria, and even parts of Turkey, southern part of Turkey, Anatolia. And so this whole region was traditionally called Sham, and that's what's being referred to in the Hadith. Now before we continue with the story of Abu Sufyan himself, the division of Arabia at the time was such that, remember this story took place after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. So between the Treaty of Hudaybiyah and the conquest of Mecca, possibly in the 7th or 8th year of Hijrah. Now, the whole of Arabia at that time was divided in such a way that the Muslims ruled Medina, the Quraysh ruled Mecca. There were some tribes that were allies of the Quraysh, there were other tribes that were allies of the Muslims in Medina. And there were many other tribes that were still totally independent. And that's as far as southern Arabia is concerned, central and southern Arabia. But as far as northern Arabia is concerned, the north-west of Arabia, the north and northwest of Arabia, and in fact the northeast, all the tribes in the north were mainly Christian. The Banu Taghlib, the Banu Tay, the Banu Lakhm, Banu Ghassan, these were all huge tribes in the north of Arabia. They were all predominantly Christian. 
and the most powerful tribe to the northwest of Arabia in modern-day Jordan, etc., was the Banu Ghassan, the Ghassanid Arabs. And these were Arabs. These were proper... Well, these were ethnic Arabs. However, they had become Christian mainly, and they were also allies and the vassals of the Byzantine Roman Empire to the north. And to the northeast, the most powerful Arab tribe, who were again Arabs, but they were also Christian, but of a different denomination. And they were the Lakhmids, known as the Banu Lakhm. And they were the allies and the vassals of the Sassanid Persian Empire to the east and the northeast of Arabia. Now, these tribes, they acted as a buffer zone between the southern and central tribes of Arabia and the Sassanid Persian Empire and the Byzantine Roman Empire. Now, the, I, I keep on saying Byzantine Roman Empire and the title of the talk is the Prophet wasallam and Heraclius, the Roman Emperor. But we aren't speaking about the Western Roman Empire. In the four, early part of the 4th century, Constantine was the sole emperor of the whole of the Roman Empire. But the Roman Empire had been going through huge upheavals and it was racked with internal conflict as well as external threats and a dire economic position. So what happened is Constantine, who after some civil fighting had become the sole emperor of the whole Roman Empire, he decided to shift his capital and centre of power from Rome in modern-day Italy, to the eastern part of the Roman Empire. And there was a city there known as Byzantium, and that's where modern-day Istanbul is. So he, he chose Byzantium as the city for his new capital. And he developed Byzantium and established his new capital there, which he named after himself Constantinople. So, and in Arabic, uh, it's referred to as Ustantiniya. So Byzantium was an ancient Greek city in, in the modern-day city of Istanbul. In 330 of the Christian calendar, Constantine shifted his capital there and developed the city and named it Constantinople. Ever since then, because Constantine was a very powerful emperor, in fact, he's famous for many reasons, including the fact that he was instrumental in establishing modern-day Christianity as is predominantly practiced throughout the world because he set up the Council of Nicaea in 325, just five years before the establishing of Constantinople, he set up the Council of Nicaea, which I've referred to in previous commentaries of the Hadith, in which he had his council of clergy and bishops, etc., declare all the other scriptures and gospels to be non-canonical and heretical. And these four were chosen. The gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John were chosen in order to form the core of the New Testament 
and all of the Gospels were declared heretical. And many of these other Gospels contain details about the Prophet Isa salam mentioned in the Qur'an, but not to be found in the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. So he was famous for many reasons. He was the one who publicly declared his conversion from Roman paganism to Christianity. And ever since then, Christianity was preferred and eventually became the state religion. And that's why only after the time of Constantine and after the establishing of Constantinople was Christianity permanently linked with the Roman Empire. So he was famous for many reasons. And that's that's the history of Constantinople. And that's why it features so prominently in this hadith. Now, later, at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, after Constantine declared Constantinople to to be his new capital, the Western Roman Empire fell into decline. In fact, it was invaded by the Northern Europeans on more than one occasion. Rome was sacked on a number of occasions. So the center of power, culture, learning, and Christianity became the eastern part of the Roman Empire, thereby from then on known as the Byzantine Roman Empire. So when I say Byzantine Roman Empire, that's what I'm speaking of. At the time of the Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet ﷺ was born in 570 CE, and Heraclius was born five years after him. And eventually he came to rule and he came to power. Round about the same time that the Prophet ﷺ declared his prophethood. But actually before that. But he, he, although he rose to power, he wasn't able to consolidate his rule until round about the same time that the Prophet ﷺ announced his prophethood. In any case, Heraclius became the Byzantine Roman Empire, and is very famous for a number of reasons. He was highly intelligent. In fact, Abu Sufyan says in one narration that I have never met a man more intelligent than Heraclius. So, and he's famous for many reasons, because of his military campaigns against the Persians. Now, during that time, a lot was happening. I'm mentioning this because all of this was happening in the background, and it was paving the way for the Prophet ﷺ and the Sahaba And some of this is even referenced in the Qur'an. Even before the Hijrah, even before the emigration, whilst the Muslims were just a small group of people in Mecca, they would receive reports of what was happening up north because Arabia was always a battleground for the influence of the surrounding empires. And the Byzantine Roman Empire, Heraclius himself, was in a constant state of war and his predecessor with the Persian Empire. Now, the Byzantines were Christians, people of the book, people of scripture. And the Persians were Zoroastrians, fire worshippers, Magians, and they were regarded as being pagans and polytheists. So even before the Hijrah, the small group of Muslims in Makkah al-Mukarramah, 
they actually identified with the Byzantine Romans. And the Quraysh, the pagan Arabs, they identified with the Persians. And with these battles, there had been a constant state of war, intermittent war, between the Persian Empire and the Byzantine Roman Empire for hundreds of years. And again, at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, things were flaring up. So during that time, whilst the Muslims were a few, a handful in Mecca, the Persians scored a huge victory over the Romans. And they captured most of their land, including Jerusalem. And they even carried away the true cross, which Christians traditionally believed was the same cross in which the Prophet Isa was crucified, although Muslims don't believe that. So the true cross was carried away by the Persians. Jerusalem was ransacked. Jerusalem was sacked. And Heraclius, his whole empire shrunk to such a degree that he took up refuge in Constantinople. And the only area of control he had was in Constantinople. He was besieged in his own city. In fact, he even thought of fleeing Constantinople and travelling to Carthage in North Africa and abandoning the capital city altogether. That's how dire things were. At that time, the Persians began taunting the Muslims and saying, see, our pagan brothers... The Persians, they've overwhelmed and vanquished your brothers in faith, the Christians. You are people of the scripture just like they are. You believe in one God. You believe in monotheism just as they do. And we believe in polytheism. We we are pagans. So if your God was true, I'm only repeating their taunt. If your God was true, why did he allow the Persians, our brothers in paganism, and polytheism, to defeat your brethren in monotheism and in in scripture. So the Muslims were not only offended, but quite overwhelmed by this. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed verses of the Qur'an, the beginning of Surah Al-Rum. And the whole surah has been named after this beginning verse. And that's why it's called the Romans. So this is what the surah is referring to, or the beginning of the surah at least. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Alif Lam Meem, Ghulibatil Rum, Fi Adna al Ardi Wahum Mim Badi Ghalabihim Sayyaghlibum, Fi Bidri Sinim, Lillahi al Amru Min Kabulu Mim Bad, Wayo Maidin Yafrahim Mu'minun bin Asrillah, Yam Surumay Sha, Wahul Azizur Rahim, Wadullah, La Yuklifullah, Wada, Wala Kinna Akthar and Nasilai Alamun, Yalamun Zahirum Min al Hayat Dunya, Wahum Anil Akhira, Hum Ghafilun. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Alif Lam Meem, the Romans have been defeated. In a land close by. But they, after their defeat, will soon triumph. To Allah belongs the affair both before and after. And on that day, meaning on the day of the triumph of the Romans, the believers shall rejoice. By the assistance of Allah, he assists whom he wills. And he is almighty, all merciful. This is a promise of Allah. And Allah does not fail in his promise. But most people do not know. They only know the appearance of the worldly life. 
and they are heedless and neglectful of the hereafter. So Allah revealed these verses in which he made a promise that the Romans would defeat the Persians. And at the time it looked impossible because the the Romans had been overrun throughout their realm, throughout all their regions. In fact, Heraclius had even thought of abandoning his capital and fleeing the continent. And the Muslims awaited that day when the roles would be reversed and the Romans would defeat the Persians. And it did happen, but many, many years later. Eventually, the Romans did defeat the Persians in a series of striking military campaigns. And this is why Heraclius is famed as a military leader because he was quite successful in totally reversing the fate of the Byzantine Roman Empire, and after being besieged in his own capital, and even intending to flee it, there came a time within a few years when he defeated the Persian Empire in their realm, and in order to pay homage and thanks to God, he made a pilgrimage on foot to Jerusalem. And remarkably, it was when he arrived in Jerusalem that he received the letter of the Prophet So, this was the background. Now, Abu Sufyan relates his hadith. And at that time, when he had this experience, Abu Sufyan wasn't a Muslim either. He only embraced Islam in the 8th year of Hijrah at the time of the conquest of Mecca. Now before, allow me to actually begin the hadith. So as I said earlier, Abu Sufyan ibn Harb informed Abdullah ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhuma that Heraclius arsala ilayhi fi raqbin min Quraysh that Heraclius sent word to him or sent a messenger to him in a caravan of the Quraysh. Now, for those of you who are following the Hadith, I'd like you to skip to the later part of the Hadith, where the words are, وَكَانَ بْنُ النَّاظُورُ صَاحِبُ إِلِيَا وَهِرَقْلَ For the rest of us, in order to understand the Hadith, there's a bit of background. More background, and that's actually mentioned in the Hadith. So let me explain. Heraclius, being a Roman emperor, Byzantine Roman emperor, he was also very, a very devout Christian, and he actually used to study these Christian scriptures. But he also used to dabble in soothsaying, fortune telling, and astrology. And what happened is that when he arrived in Jerusalem to on foot as a pilgrimage to pay thanks to Allah for his victory over the Persians, although he should have been elated and overjoyed, and he was triumphant, proud, joyous, and grateful to God, However, one day, all of a sudden, he woke up ill-tempered. 
And for some time before that, because he was a soothsayer, he also had knowledge of the Christian scriptures, and he dabbled in fortune-telling. He had been reading the stars. He had been looking at the astrological signs. He had been conferring with his astrologers and other fortune-tellers and soothsayers and looking at the scriptures. And many things led him to believe that something great was about to happen. One night, he dreamt. And the next morning when he woke up, he was very ill-tempered. And that's what's referred to in this hadith. So those of you who are reading, towards the end of the hadith, it says, وَكَانُ بْنُ النَّاظُرُ صَاحِبُ إِلِيَا وَهِرَقْلَ سُقُفًا عَلَى نَصَارَ الشَّامِ يُحَدِّثُ So it's mentioned there. So he says, last night, in some narrations it's mentioned that he saw a dream. And in this narration it just says that he was consulting the astrologers and looking at the zodiacal signs himself. And he realized, and he was convinced, that or what he saw was that the king of the circumcised people is rising to power, has become powerful. And so the next morning he woke up when he summoned, when he convened his court, he questioned his courtiers, his patriarchs, his patricians, and bishops and generals. And they said to him that, he said, who are the people who are circumcised? So they said, only the Jews are circumcised. And he related his conviction to them or he related his belief to them, and they said, only the Jews are circumcised, but you don't have anything to fear from them. If you do fear from them, just send your generals out and your armies out to all parts of the land and kill all the Jews. And therefore this threat will be overcome. And at that time, one of the Ghassani kings, the Arab Ghassani king, he sent word to Heraclius in Jerusalem telling him about the Prophet and he learnt about the Prophet and then he realised that it's not the Jews that are being referred to the circumcised people but right, he said Do the Arab, are the Arabs circumcised and they said yes so he realised that it was the king of the Arabs but he still didn't know much then at that time, after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, the Prophet ﷺ began sending messengers to different rulers, to Mqawqis, the Patriarch of Egypt, to the Persian Emperor, and even to Heraclius. And eventually, whilst Heraclius was in Jerusalem, he received the letter of the Prophet ﷺ. And this was after he had questioned his courtiers about the uncircumcised people, sorry, the circumcised people, and his visions and his belief because of astrology about the Prophet ﷺ. Now there's a question here which I will answer in more detail when we actually come to that point in the hadith. That why 
are we referring to astrology and why is it mentioned in the Hadith? And how could Heraclius tell? Well, we learn from a number of narrations that the Prophet ﷺ said that the jinn would eavesdrop and the evil shayateen and the evil de- and the devils would eavesdrop and try to gain celestial information and they would try to gain information related to the occult and the supernatural. And they would relay this information to their friends and allies and counterparts amongst the human population. However, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala puts a stop to that. But the shayateen still attempt to do so. But they are unsuccessful. What they do manage sometimes is to catch a word or two here and there. And what they do is that they take that one word and they mix it with a hundred lies. So there is some truth to the fact that when people dabble in the supernatural and in the occult, they are able to gain some glimpses. An example of that is Ibn Sayyad. Ibn Sayyad was a very strange character. He was just a child at the time of the Prophet Rasulullah was very suspicious of him. And one day, the Prophet went with Umar ibn Khattab. He lived in Medina. He went with Umar ibn Khattab to look for this young lad who was known as Ibn Sayyad. So the Prophet ﷺ tread very carefully. And he was lying down in a hammock, mumbling something to himself, muttering to himself. So as the Prophet ﷺ crept up to him, his mother shouted out, that, oh, here is Muhammad. So the Prophet ﷺ, when he was alerted to the Prophet ﷺ, he went to him and with him was Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu anhu. So the Prophet ﷺ questioned him, interrogated him. And then Rasulullah said to him, I've thought of a word. Tell me what it is. I've concealed a word. And the word that the Prophet ﷺ concealed was Dukhan. The verse of the Qur'an in which Allah speaks about the Dukhan, from which the surah has been named Surah Al-Dukhan. Dukhan means smoke. So the Prophet ﷺ chose the word Dukhan. So he said, I've kept a word in mind, what is it? Even though he was a child, he, be, he couldn't get all of it, but straight away he said to the Prophet ﷺ, Dukh, 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 Dukh. So he got half the word. So, a lot more happened. Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu as ever said, Ya Rasulullah, grant me permission. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said to him, now leave him. For if he is, if he isn't, then you will harm an innocent soul. And if he is the jar, then you wouldn't be able to affect him in any way. So he... he Subhanallah, he even managed to catch half the word 
in the Prophet ﷺ's mind. Duh, duh. And this is why sometimes we hear of people who are able to who see dreams of something that's about to happen. Or they are able to say something. And it's not entirely true, but it's partially true. And in a hadith, Prophet ﷺ clearly explains this, that the shayateen mix 99 lies with one truth. One truth with 99 lies. And this is what they feed to their friends. And so, people tend to focus on the one truth and ignore the 99 lies, if it ever comes true. So Heraclius was able to gather that something great was about to happen. He didn't know the details, but what he knew, what he learned from everything that he saw and that he dreamt, was that there was a king of the circumcised people who has now risen to power. And when was this? At the time of after Hudaybiyah. And remember what I said? Even though Mecca was still in the hand of the Quraysh, did not the Prophet ﷺ say to them after the fifth year, in the fifth year of Hijrah, that after the battle of Hudaybiyah, that after this day, they will never march against us, we shall march against them. And after the treaty of Hudaybiyah, did not Allah reveal to the Prophet ﷺ, إِنَّا فَتَحْنَا لَكَ فَتْحًا مُبِينًا Verily, we have scored a decisive and clear victory for you. And even the Sahaba questioned, that is this a victory, O Messenger of Allah? And he said, yes, indeed, this truce of Hudaybiyah is a victory. So, the hadith merely relates what Heraclius was able to gather, though he didn't have detailed knowledge of it. And what the hadith is trying to show is that at that time, signs were appearing all over the world about the Prophet ﷺ. And it was with that backdrop that when he then received the letter, he then, so he consulted his patriarchs and patricians and colleagues. They said to him, it's the Arabs who are circumcised. He then said, he then received a messenger from the Ghassani king who was his ally, who related information about the Prophet ﷺ to him. Shortly after that, the Prophet ﷺ, because of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah and the time of peace, when he sent letters to all these rulers, he sent a letter to Heraclius too. And he sent it with, he sent it with a companion known as Dihyatul Kalbi radiyallahu Dihyat ibn Khalifa al-Kalbi. Now, the, he was from the tri- tribe of Banu Kalb. Banu Kalb were one of these northern tribes too. So Dihya al-Kalbi radiyallahu an took the letter to the governor of Basra. And the governor of Basra then sent the letter to Heraclius. He received it. He read it. But he couldn't make, he didn't know how to respond at the time. And therefore he left the letter. But, he wanted to inquire more about the Prophet ﷺ. So he received the letter, he didn't believe, but having read the letter, he summoned his courtiers again and said to them that, do we know of any Arabs here who know anything about this man who claims to be a prophet? So they said, no. 
So he said, turn the whole of Sham inside out and see if you can locate any Arabs who know anything about this man in detail. So then he was told that, well, he sent his soldiers and they went to different parts of Sham. At that time, Abu Sufyan was with his caravan of 30 people in Gaza. And Gaza was a famous port of trade even then. So they were in the port city of Gaza, Gaza. And whilst they were trading there, he says all of a sudden the soldiers came. And they grabbed all 30 of us and hauled us to Jerusalem. And there we were taken into the royal court of Heraclius. And we were made to sit down in front of him. And that's when he began to question me. So this is the backdrop. Heraclius had learned a few things about the Prophet ﷺ. He had received the letter. And upon receiving the letter, he now wanted to know more. He summoned Abu Sufyan, who was in Gaza at the time, on a trade mission with 30 of his fellow Qurayshis. And he was summoned to the royal court of Heraclius. Now we may continue. So Abu Sufyan says, أَنَّ هِرَقْلَ أَرْسَلَ إِلَيْهِ فِي رَكْبٍ مِّن قُرَيْشٍ That Heraclius sent for him amongst the caravan of the Quraysh. There were about 30 people in that caravan. وَكَانُوا تِجَارٌ بِالشَّامِ And they were traders in Sham. فِي الْمُدَّةِ الَّتِي كَانَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمْ مَادَّ فِيهَا أَبَا سُفْيَانِ and they were traders in Sham, and specifically where we learn from other narrations that they were in Gaza. It was a famous trading port and city at the time, and the Arabs always used to refer to Gaza as Gaza to Hashim, because if you recall, I've mentioned to you a few months ago that the Prophet Sallallahu great grandfather Hashim, on a trading mission, he died in Gaza, and he's buried there. So the Prophet Sallallahu great grandfather, the father of Abdul Muttalib, his father was Abdullah, whose father was Abdul Muttalib, whose father was Hashim. So Hashim, the great grandfather of the Prophet Sallallahu was a famous trader, and he he died on a trade mission whilst he himself was in Gaza. So the Arabs always used to refer to, after that they used to refer to Gaza not just as Gaza, but Gaza to Hashim meaning the Gaza of Hashim. So Abu Sufyan was in Gaza. فِي الْمُدَّةِ الَّتِي كَانَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمْ مَادَّ فِيهَا أَبَا سُفْيَانِ وَكُفَّارُ قُرَيْشِ During that period in which the Prophet sallallahu the Messenger sallallahu had agreed a truce with Abu Sufyan and the unbelievers of the Quraysh. And that truce was for ten years. The Treaty of Hudaybiyah said, for ten years, we will have a truce. فَأَطَوْهُ وَهُمْ So they came to Heraclius, وَهُمْ whilst they were at Elia. Elia is Jerusalem. Now, why do the Arabs call, why is it called Elia in the Hadith? It's because Elia is the Arabic form of Ayla. And Ayla was the Roman name for Jerusalem. Jerusalem in 70 AD 
And in 135 AD, when there were riots, Jerusalem was demolished. The populace was suppressed. And Jerusalem was demolished, most of it, by the Roman rulers. And then Hadrian, who rebuilt Jerusalem, when he rebuilt it, instead of calling it Jerusalem, he called it by a Roman name. And it was therefore called Ayla. And for many centuries it was known as Ayla. And that's why the Arabs also called it Elia. Elia is the Arabic version of Ayla, which was the official Roman name for Jerusalem. Jerusalem means the city of peace. Jerusalem, Salam, the latter part of it is to do with Salam, Medina to Salam. And Ur, Ur just means city. So originally it was called Urushalem or Urushalom, meaning the city of peace. And that's why it's called Jerusalem. We call it Baytul Maqdis or Al Baytul Muqaddas, the sacred city, the holy city. But the Romans called it, after the demolition of Jeru- most of Jerusalem, when they rebuilt it, they decided to give it a new name altogether and it was given a Roman name. It wasn't called Jerusalem, which was a traditional Hebrew name. So they called it Ayla, or that's a pronunciation, and the Arabs called it Elia. So when we say Elia in the Hadith, we're just using the Roman name for Bayt al-Maqdis, for Jerusalem. So they came to Heraclius whilst they were in Elia, meaning Jerusalem. So Abu Sufyan and his 30 companions were ushered into the great hall of the royal palace in Jerusalem. And they were then made to sit down in front, we learn from another hadith in Bukhari, that they were made to sit down in front of Heraclius. And the royal court was full. And around Heraclius were the dignitaries of Rome. Then Heraclius called them, i.e. closer. And he called his interpreter. And then through the interpreter, he's now having a conversation with this whole group. So he said to them, ask them, Who of you is closest in lineage to this man who claims to be a prophet. Because remember, he had already received the letter of the Prophet Although Abu Sufyan didn't know this. And Abu Sufyan was an unbeliever at the time. Nor did he know why he was being summoned. So he said to the interpreter, ask them, who of you is closest in lineage to this man who claims to be a prophet? فَقَالَ أَبُو سُفْيَانَ So Abu Sufyan said, فَقُلْتْ So I said, أَنَا أَقْرَبُهُمْ نَسَبًا I am the closest to him in lineage. Now, let me say a bit about Abu Sufyan as well, before we continue. Abu Sufyan was a cousin of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And at this time, he was slightly older than the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. According to some narrations, he was 10 years older than the Prophet. 
but he was very intelligent, a great trader and businessman, and one of the merchant class of the Quraysh. And in Mecca, he sat in the council of elders, along with all the other leaders, Abu Jahl, Utbah Shayba, Walid ibn al-Mughira, and others, Umayyah. But he, was, he wasn't as old as the others. Now Abu Sufyan was more of a trader at the time, but he still opposed the Prophet ﷺ. Before the Battle of Badr, he wasn't as prominent because of the others, the more senior, older, and more powerful leaders of the Quraysh. But what happened in the Battle of Badr is that the elite of the Quraysh were wiped out. So Abu Sufyan then rose to prominence, and he then more or less became the leader of Mecca, after the Battle of Badr, not before. And he wasn't present in the Battle of Badr, because remember, he had... He was on that caravan, trade caravan, returning from Sham. And then he stayed in Mecca. But the next year, in the Battle of Uhud, Abu Sufyan led the Quraysh against the Muslims. He was the leader. In the fifth year of Hijrah, in the Battle of the Trench, he was the leader. And therefore, after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, on this occasion, he was still one of the greatest leaders of Mecca, if not the outright leader. And he was, a, he, was, he was a relative of the Prophet wasallam, and I'll explain to you how. So when Heraclius said, who of you is a closest in lineage to this man who claims to be a prophet? Abu Sufyan said, I am. Now he was, a, he was the leader of the trade caravan anyway. But he also said, I am the closest to, the prophet, to Muhammad who claims to be a prophet. Now... As I said earlier, Heraclius was intelligent and he had knowledge of the scriptures and his questions revealed that too. So why did he say that who is the closest in lineage? He deliberately asked that question so that he could pick the right person to question so that this person would speak the truth. Not only would he know him very closely, because he would be a relative, but he would also at least not attack his lineage and question his honour and dignity. In this day and age, lineage, ancestry may not mean much because of the difference in culture. But at that time, for Muslims, non-Muslims, for Arabs, non-Arabs alike, lineage and ancestry, bloodline meant a lot. So, very intelligently and wisely, he asked who is the closest to him in lineage so that anyone who he questions about the Prophet ﷺ would not simply attack his lineage and honor. Because Heraclius wanted the truth. So Abu Sufyan said, I am the closest to him in lineage. And although it's not mentioned in this narration, in another narration of Bukhari, Heraclius asked him, again through the interpreter, that what's your relation to him? So he said, he is my cousin brother. Now he was his cousin brother, but not first cousin. He was third cousin to the Prophet ﷺ. And after that whole group, why was he the closest? Because Abu Sufyan, 
His father's name was, in fact, his own name was Sakhr. And his father's name was Harb. His grandfather's name was Umayyah. And his great-grandfather's name was Abdushams. And Abdushams was the brother of Hashim, who died in Gaza. So, if you look at the Prophet ﷺ, Abu Sufyan, the Prophet ﷺ's father, Abdullah, Abu Sufyan's father, Harb, they were second cousins. The Prophet ﷺ's father, Abdul Muttalib, Harb's father, Umayyah, they were first cousins. Prophet Abdul Muttalib's father, the Prophet Sallallahu great-grandfather Hashim, and Umayyah's father was Abdul Shams. Abdul Shams and Hashim were blood brothers, the sons of Abdul Manaf. So he was his third cousin, and their great-grandfathers, Abu Sufyan's great-grandfather Abdul Shams, and the Prophet Sallallahu great-grandfather Hashim were blood brothers, full brothers, Sons of Abdul Manaf. And he himself says in that other narration of Bukhari that in that whole group there was none, no one of the children of Abdul Manaf except me. So he said, I am the closest to him in lineage. Faqal, so Heraclius said, Adnuhu minni. Bring him closer to me. Waqarribu ashabah. And bring his companions closer. فَجَعَلُوهُمْ عِنْدَ ظَهْرِهِ And place them behind his back. Why? It's, again, it's mentioned in the narration that he did that so that Abu Sufyan would speak the truth. And here it says, ثُمَّ قَالَ لِتَرْجُمَانِهِ Then he said to his interpreter, tell them, قُلْ لَهُمْ tell them, إِنِّي سَائِلٌ هَذَا عَنْ هَذَا الرَّجُلِ I'm going to question this man, meaning Abu Sufyan, about this man, meaning Muhammad, who claims to be a prophet. فَإِن كَذَبَنِي فَكَذِّبُوهُ So if he lies to me, then you belie him. And he, did, he didn't put them face to face. Again, very wisely, he told Abu Sufyan to sit in front of him, and he told the whole group of 30 to sit behind him, so that Abu Sufyan wouldn't know what they are saying or what they are motioning and signaling, even with their hands or their faces. And then Heraclius said, I'm going to question him. If he lies, he would immediately be able to tell if any one of the group of 30 revealed that he is lying. Abu Sufyan says, فَوَاللَّهِ So by Allah, if it wasn't for the shame that they would quote a lie from me about the Prophet ﷺ, I would have lied against him. Because he was his enemy. But the Arabs still had a certain protocol. They still had honor and dignity. They were fierce Bedouin warriors. But they were also chivalrous. And they had this concept of chivalry. Which meant that they had certain codes of honor. 
And one of them was that they wouldn't lie. They considered lying to be beneath them. They would rather die than lie. And it was embarrassing, it was shameful. That's why he says, in fact he trusted his colleagues so much that you can tell from the words of the hadith. He says, if it wasn't for the shame, not that they would reject me, but that they would quote me. So what he knew is that we are a close-knit group, we are a bonded group. Even if I lie, they won't reveal that to Heraclius. They won't let on to Heraclius that I'm lying. They'll defend me. But even though they may defend me here or not reveal to Heraclius that I'm lying, later they may go back and tell someone that he lied. And that would be something deeply embarrassing and shameful. Even for a man like Abu Sufyan, who was a bitter enemy of the Prophet ﷺ, that he lied against his enemy, they wouldn't lie against enemies. They would rather die than do that. So he says, if it wasn't for the shame of them quoting me, lying about the Prophet ﷺ, I would have surely lied against him. But he didn't. Then, as I said, there was a code of honor. And Abu Sufyan was one of those. In fact, the Arabs were like that. They were such, when the Prophet ﷺ returned from Ba'if, no one wished to give him protection. One of the Quraysh, who wasn't a Muslim, decided to give the Prophet ﷺ protection. He went out in full armor, with his clan members. And he escorted the Prophet ﷺ to the haram. And the Prophet ﷺ calmly performed the tawaf. This was when he returned from Ta'if in approximately the 51st year of Hijrah. Oh, sorry, of his life. When he gained no protection after the death of his uncle, Abu Talib. So, <coughs> there was that sense of honor that I give protection even to someone who is of a different people, a different clan. Abu Sufyan himself, even though he was an enemy of the Prophet ﷺ, his daughter had embraced Islam. Ramla, his daughter, whose kunya was Umm Habiba radiyallahu anha. She emigrated to Abyssinia from Mecca. And when she emigrated to Abyssinia there, her husband, Ubaidullah ibn Jahsh, the brother of Zainab bin Tujahsh radiyallahu anha, and the cousin brother of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he died. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam then sent word to Najashi Negus, the emperor of Abyssinia, to propose to Umm Habiba radiyallahu anha, the daughter of Abu Sufyan. Her name was Ramla. And since she had a daughter from Ubaidullah known as Habiba, she was known as Umm Habiba. So she accepted the proposal of the Prophet ﷺ. And in absentia, the emperor of Abyssinia, he performed the nikah for Rasulullah ﷺ. He wasn't present. The Messenger ﷺ was in Medina. Umm Habiba anha was in Abyssinia. Now, when Abu Sufyan, who was an enemy of the Prophet ﷺ, whose daughter had, in his view, fled to Abyssinia, 
and his en- and now he learns that she has married his bitter enemy, the one whom he f- fights against, leads armies against. When he learned that the Prophet ﷺ had married his daughter, do you know what he said? This was their sense of honor. He said, she has married a worthy man. She has married a worthy man. So, he feared being quoted. That if they ever quote about me that I have lied. That shame and embarrassment prevented him from lying about the Prophet wasallam. I'll end here because then from this moment onwards begins the actual questioning, various questions about the Prophet and his message. I end with this. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enable us to understand, may he allow us to appreciate the Prophet as he should be appreciated. نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك نشهد أن لا إله إلا أنت نستغفرك ونتوب إليك. This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadhul Haq and has been brought to you by Alkotha Productions. For additional lectures and products, please visit www.akstore.com. We can also be contacted by phone on double zero double four one two one double seven one. Three triple seven, or by email via sales at akstore.com. Produced under license by Alcotha Productions. All rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author. Any unauthorized distribution, broadcasting, or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright.